that hinge is a lot like the hinge on the stall door in the men's room, sitting on the John in there, looking at the joint of the way that that door swings and the way that that thing's connected together. That time was well spent, you know, to go back out there and say, Hey, I think we can make this thing work. I think I found a hinge, you know, a way that this thing could hinge, you know. Hey, you're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And tonight we are joined by Bernie Solo, inventor, innovator, and creator extraordinaire. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie, I will let you do a quick plug for your Instagram, YouTube, and any other social media that you have. Okay. Yeah. Hello, everybody. I am Works by Solo on all social media. So, and that's also my dot com. It's all jammed together. Works by Solo, all one word. I say I'm an artist, designer, and maker of things, so it covers everything. <laughs> I think that is an apt description, Bernie. Uh, for those who don't know Bernie, I've been following your work, it seems like, for quite some time. Uh, I think we probably ran into each other on YouTube before anywhere else, but... Well, it's when I bought your Twisted Sharpie. Yeah, that's, that's when we go. got together, when I bought the first twisted, my first Twisted Sharpie from you. There you go, and... Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, Bernie has one of the coolest fidget spinners. Uh, oh, course, you pulled that out. <laughs> yeah. For for those who, who want uh, something just really cool. Um, and now, of course, the name's escaping me because my I'm getting old and I forget things. I've even got your T-shirt with it on there. Hold on. Oh, it, the Sprocket. 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 So and that's trademarked. It, I did get my trademark. It came through. And you've came actually been, still, so. you've been copied. You've been completely ripped off, right? There were some folks oh, yeah. uh, offshore, let's say, mm -hmm. that were making their, their copy of the sprocket and selling it. I'm not sure. Was that on Amazon or it was somewhere? Oh, they it? still are. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it is a manufacturer. The company itself is in China and the manufacturing is done in China. They actually contacted me and they complimented me on how well my YouTube video was showing them how to uh, to make it. So the guy was nice, no, it, was really, it was really nice. He was, he was very cordial. He even asked me if I had a, a patent yet for licensing and things like that. And I, I don't have a patent number, it's patent pending still. And so he was like, well, I guess we, you know, we can't really do anything right now. So um, yeah, so it was, uh, I actually got contacted by, by those people. And it is, it's all over Amazon and everything. And I, I, I get, uh, you know, people in my uh, patent attorney, you know, he said, just take it as a big compliment. He goes, a lot of people have inventions and patents and things like that. And they don't, they don't get ripped off. So you must've had it. You, you must have a good thing. So along those lines, um, I know I get asked all the time about patents for the little inventions that I've come up with. And my standard response is, you know, we all hear the word patent when we're, you know, young, hey, it's a patented this or that, you know, you hear it on TV, the process is expensive, it's fairly long. And at the end of the day, the question is, will it really protect your intellectual property once you have it, because you have to mm -hmm. defend it, you have to pay a lawyer to defend it, uh, if somebody rips it off. So there's an, there's a fairly large dollar amount that you would have to go after before it even makes sense. So my question yeah. is, number one, how many patents have you applied for in your life? And then how many have you gotten? One and one. Since I was a little kid, we, I live in Michigan and there's a wonderful museum. You may have heard of it in Dearborn, Michigan. That's the Henry Ford Museum. Mm -hmm. Henry yep. Ford uh, in his life was just, uh, well, he wasn't an inventor, but he collected inventions and he's got some very important uh, historical inventions that he purchased and put in that museum for everybody to enjoy there. And as a kid, we would take uh, field trips, you know, in school. And I just thought back, I just wanted to be an inventor at some point and uh, uh, have a patent, you know? So I, I, I had this, this idea for that fidget toy and it really hit a lot of, you know, people really liked it and everything. And I thought I researched it and I thought this could be something that, like, that could be my, uh, on my bucket list, you know, to have that, that patent. So, um, but that, yeah. And what you were saying about the protections. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, things that um, assumptions that people make about those that I, I did discover the truth about all of that, that there are no patent police. There's nobody out there that's going to watch for that stuff for you. And as far as the costs go, the situation that I'm in right now is that my attorney, a nice guy, very, he is looking out for me. Uh, and he said, like with the Amazon resellers that we could go out there and just have them, they're resellers, they're buying the wholesale. Right. So they're not right. actually the manufacturer reselling it. 
and we could stop them. You could just write a letter and say, you need to stop this cease and desist, you know, type of a thing and just do that to every one of them. But every one of those letters that he writes is going to be several hundred dollars, you know, five to $800 per letter. And I don't get any return on that. There's nothing I get back. There's no damages. There's, there's nothing. It just stops them. So he just said, it's like playing whack-a-mole and a real expensive game, you know, and that's all it would do. And so that, that's, it's kind of how it is. And then as far as the manufacturer goes, it's overseas. It's not an American manufacturer that's having it manufactured overseas. The, the, the company themselves is overseas and we would have to actually sue them in China. And the thing is, is because I'm, I'm not mass producing it yet. I can't even prove that I would have damages, you know, a dollar amount of damages or anything because I'm just making them myself. So that's basically in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> just getting the patent so I can say I've got a patent finally and check, check it off my bucket list. You know, I'm I'm chasing one in the exact same way. It's really just mm -hmm. to have it. And I've always had a theory that if you can get to market before anyone else, mm -hmm. you, you know, especially on something like the sprocket, this isn't this isn't maybe going to be sold by the millions. It's going to be sold probably by the hundreds because people like mm -hmm. you, they like Bernie, they like the work that you do. And they want some part of, of what you're doing. So if you can beat mm -hmm. them to market and make your customers happy, let everybody else do whatever it is that they're going to do because you yeah. can't control it. And that is how you do it. And I'll tell you what, you said about my, my customers, my followers, and that's one of the really things that makes me feel really good about the fact that I do have people that follow me on my, the, my merit, like on that, the things that yeah. I do, and they really love what I do. And I have a list going because I'm going to eventually uh, start making a few more batches, you know, you know by hand. Um, and uh, I have a long list of people. They'll email me and say they don't want a knockoff and they want an original and they're going to wait for it. And it's going to cost them more, but they just they want the original one. And I really it just really warms my heart to know that there are people out there, um, you know, that would that would do that for me. You know, to, it basically, well, you know how it is when you do these things like yeah. with the twisted Sharpie, they just want to support you because they like what you're doing, you know, and it's just, it's a really good feeling to have that community out there. Yeah. Jimmy Duresta had the same thing with, uh, his, um, ice pick that, uh, he wanted to sell them because they were selling really popular. And so he had a whole bunch made in China, but not very many people would buy the, the China one, <laughs> even though it was cheaper, they wanted the, the ones that Duresta made. And I think that's a really good Mm -hmm. A lesson for anybody, an artist or anybody that works in a creative field is uh, if you can build a following, uh, you don't need the art galleries or you don't need uh, Amazon to uh, to make a good living. Yeah, well, it's almost like I, I was just having this talk with my uh, my younger brother the other day. He's a, he's quite an inventor himself. And uh, what it reminds me of is being able to have our own, I'd say ours, anybody that's on social media and has really good following is kind of like having your own personal Kickstarter uh, because you already have the customers there that really like what you do and they are waiting for the next thing that you're going to make. Like, like they've got their money in their hand. You know, they're like, I really like what you're doing and whatever you're doing, I really want to support you. So whatever the next thing is, I would like to support you. So when you come out with a new product or a, a, a piece that you're going to uh, produce a number of our limited edition, there's those customers that are already going to be there um, ahead of time. And so um, we know some people in the community, like I'm thinking of like Tony Rouleau, where he can uh, do pre-orders for things. So if there's a financial outlay for materials and maybe some outside manufacturing, things like that, you can actually take pre-orders just like you would in a Kickstarter. And um, I haven't done that yet, but I'm thinking about maybe I would do that with my next next batch of those sprocket uh, fidget toys, you know, to be able to uh, go ahead and, uh, you know, take the pre-orders. And then also, you know, as far as working independently, I, when I used to work in the advertising industry, the deadlines were just critical. And now I'm really independent, not having a real critical deadline. I can kind of be like, oh, you know, I'll get them done whenever. But if I had pre-orders and I already had dates going, I think that would actually get me going, you know, to say, I've got a deadline, I've got to meet this, I've got people already paid their money. And I need deliverables, you know, so I think that's a, that's kind of a neat thing that we can do when we have a following. Absolutely. And I think, I think for the benefit of the listeners who are maybe getting into making things and selling things, uh, one of the interesting things that I've learned is when you're talking about a sprocket or something along those lines, there's a level of quality that number one, the makers expect from themselves, but number two that the buyers expect. And most buyers at that level or that point, if you've got a production issue, uh, hey, we couldn't get steel or hey, I ran mm -hmm. 30 parts through that were trash. Everyone understands a delay 
if they know the thing they're going to get is exactly what they want. And it's it's something that uh, I've had to lean on a little bit with regard to to just making production schedule. If you've never made a thousand of a part, you don't know what it takes to make a thousand of them <laughs> until you sure. do it. And so you guess at these dates and you think, oh yeah, we can make 50 a day or we can make 20 a day or whatever the magic number is. And it almost never works out. Either it goes way faster than you think or way slower. But I, I've found that if people know that they're getting number one, something that your your hands are on, that's part of you. I think that's a very important piece as artists we're passing those things along, but, uh, but number two, they know it's going to be worth the wait. And I, you know, mm -hmm. Tony Rouleau, I think is definitely one of those names. I'll, I'd wait in eternity <laughs> for one of his yeah. tools. I know I you're know, a big fan of his for sure. Yeah. I heard you talking about it. I, I know when I get it in my hands, it's going to be exactly what I thought it was going to be, or probably to, to a lot of extent, more than what I thought it would be. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think people that uh, support artists are are minded in a, such a way that the support of the artist is more important than the thing. I've had clients uh, order things from me before that I had to tell them up front, like, I'm not really sure if I can do that, but I'm willing to try. And I says, yeah, I'll probably be able to get it done in four weeks or whatever. And eight weeks later, I'm still trying to figure it out. And I have to make that phone call. Hey, I've, I haven't figured it out yet. And uh, there was this one copper patina I had to do for a client that she really wanted. And it took me a while to figure it out. And now that I figured it out, I've implemented it in other things. And so every time I post a, a photo of something that I've used that technique on Instagram after her project, she always messages me and she's like, I love the fact that I pushed you down this route. Yeah, that's great. And, the, and the, having the social media allows us to have that transparency too. So if there's something going on, like in Instagram stories, say for instance, and you've got a, every day something and something came up or whatever. And then if you do end up having to message somebody and say, I, I was delayed, they'll, they can always go, I saw on your story. Yeah. You're, you wrecked your car last week and you're dealing with that right now. Cause I saw, I see that, you know, sort of a thing. So that transparency, I think can really help, you know, cause it kind of gets people, the followers into, you know, what your day-to-day -day is, or at least a little glimpse of it. I see your drafting board behind you and in, in my heart. Oh yeah. <laughs> my heart's kind of going pitter patter old, because old I know, stuff. I know we come from a slightly similar background and that we're probably more traditionally trained in terms of design and how you illustrate your designs. I think you've actually made comments on some of my drawings on Instagram. I'll post my little sketches every once in a while. And, yeah. and it always, like warms my heart that there's other people that appreciate, you know, good lettering and, and nice, nicely done sketches, but you also have crossed over. I've seen some of your, um, some of your Rhino work. And I know you, you use a host of other softwares, most people who are working on that digital side, but, but you have this really great way of melding. Uh, I'll say the computer design CNC techniques, but then also hand techniques and old world machining. And I just want you to talk a little bit about number one, your background, what that looked like for those who may not know, but then how did you start incorporating some of the technology into what you're doing? Okay. Well, like <laughs> long question in the pre-show that I'm, yeah, I'm just about to turn 60 years old. So living a long time and doing a lot of things, uh, you know, everybody I would say most people would gain, gain wisdom, gain skills and things like that. So for people that are younger, they're, you know, they're still in the path of, of gaining all these skills. So I just don't want to, I want people to know, like, you know, that it does take time. A lot of the stuff does, but uh, you know, ever since I was, a, when, when I was a kid, um, I was the artist kid in the school, like the teachers would always have me doing the poster boards and things like that. Cause it was like, Oh, you know, you're, you, you know, you, I, I'm the one that got to use the stapler. I remember that from grade school, like I could be the one stapling stuff up on the bulletin boards, you know, and cutting out the construction paper letters and stuff like that. Cause I was just the, the teachers, I guess they knew I enjoyed it. Um, and, and I was fortunate enough that, um, I, uh, my my parents were pretty much just open to whatever I was doing. I don't remember them pushing me in any particular direction and they weren't overly concerned about my grades and things because academically my grades weren't that great. I almost flunked out of high school. Uh, luckily, I uh, um, was able to get into some of the uh, shop classes and we actually had a printing press, a little printing press at our uh, high school. It wasn't like an antique one like Jimmy has, but it was a, uh, an electric uh, printing press. So I actually learned some oh, graphics yeah. there. We had photography class in high school and I was also on the yearbook staff. 
if I could um, probably list something that was probably really significant to where I actually got into what I decided to do for my first step in my career was the fact that I had a photography teacher that was really good and knew that I really liked it. I wasn't just in there to try and get the grade because I was failing <laughs> other things. Um, but uh, so he really, he, he, he knew that that was it. So he let me do some extra photo projects, but tying it in with being on the yearbook staff was that I was taking pictures for the yearbook, which was a, it was like a, for advertising, like there were the, the sponsors, the people that would uh, donate money, you know, to the school to support the cost it took to print the yearbook. So they take ads out. And so I was actually going out and photographing like the local pizza place, you know, or the, or the dry cleaners or whatever, you know, and doing all that. And then turning those pictures in, they were deadlines. They were for ads. And so I became, I started doing creative work like that. That was actually commercial creative work. It was creative work that I actually had an assignment for, you know, and there was a brief mm -hmm. that was like, this is what you got to go do and you need to get this done. And it's got to be, so I got, when I started doing art in photography, I did the graphic for the cover of the yearbook and it was a graphic. It was a piece of art that got, um, you know, printed onto the cover and I did the divider pages and things like that. So I was doing art but it was art that was asked for. And it was, it was cause I wasn't getting paid for it, but you know, then it turned into like, Oh, you can do commercial art and you can have art that you get a purchase order for. And then you do the art and then you bill them and you get paid. It wasn't like fine art that I do the art and then I wait till somebody wants to buy it. That's right. a completely different thing. Right. So you, and you guys both know how that is where you get an assignment from a client you're like, okay, I've got this thing, this creative thing I need to do and do it. So at a young age, I had even painted a couple of poster things and a little sign and stuff for like the local party store and things like that. So I just kind of got a taste for doing creative work and getting uh, paid for it, like right then, not waiting until later type of a thing, you know, not the, the starving artist scenario that a lot of people think when people, kids go to art school. Then I found out about the College for Creative Studies, as it's called now, it was a center for creative studies in Detroit. That's where I decided to go to school for my college. So I, I do have a, um, a bachelor's of fine arts degree, uh, but it's in commercial art, illustration and photography. And in the Detroit area, um, I'm sure there's other cities around the country that are like this too, but because of the automotive industry, there were actually commercial art studios that would have like, mm -hmm. you know, 10, 20, 30. I think the biggest studio had about 30 artists on staff, on payroll that were doing commercial art. Most of it was uh, automotive. It's amazing the things you <laughs> have to do illustrations of. I mean, I remember I spent one, summer uh painting brake parts i did airbrush illustration technical illustration of parts for brake for brakes you know brake drums brake pads and things like that so some of my favorite illustrations come out of old uh workshop manuals that show you how to repair oh, yeah. things on cars because they would start with a photograph but then they'd have to airbrush detail in because they couldn't light it properly and they're yeah. just wonderful illustrations. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was interested in that same type of thing. So that's the kind of art that I was doing. That was a all manual hand done type illustration work up until I remember it was actually 1990. Uh, there was a friend of mine, uh, two friends actually, that uh, decided to invest in a computer system that they could do digital artwork on. And uh, we had a at the studio at the time. So that would have been like the late eighties. And there was one Apple Macintosh computer that was there that you could do some type, some typesetting on. And they were just kind of dabbling in it at the time. Um, there was a company out of England, uh, Quantel with a Q, Quantel paint box. It was a video system, but they came out with a graphic paint box, which was a, uh, a, a computer that was specifically made to do illustration um, for print. And so I was fortunate enough to uh, have access to that. And I showed such an interest in it. I, they said, would you like a full-time job doing this? And I literally went from paint to digital, like within a few months, I was fully digital um, doing that. So we were doing the illustration work, but it, the system was really expensive and trying to pay the bills and pay for the, the, the computer time and all of that. They moved into um, doing what was new in Detroit at the time was uh, photo retouching uh, well, car photos, they're beauty photos. They're just like fashion photos, but they're of yeah. cars, right? Uh, they were always retouched, you know, to make them look nice and clean and all the reflections were straight and everything like that. But um, so what was asked of us was, can you use this computer system to retouch, digitally retouch the car photos? So is that kind of like the first iteration of Photoshop or the kind of like a, a Photoshop type of a program back then? Yeah, it didn't do 
anywhere near what Photoshop Shop does uh, today, does, but, but that was, was kind of the industrial first system. I actually have a poster still of some flyers from Photoshop 1.0, like when it came out, like that was the thing right about that time. Cause that would have been right around, like I said, right around 1990, 89, yeah. 90. Uh, I think that that would have been Photoshop 1.0. Like when yeah. that, so it was really great that I had the chance of going from, you know, hand-drawn uh, art uh, to digital, you know, and being be able to see that, that transition, you know, to go across and do that. So I, I went, I did that for, um, worked there for about a little, between four and five years uh, at the time, but also, so they, that would have been 90, I started there in 93, I, I incorporated my company uh, because I wanted to design lamps. So I was really into that and also mid-century modern. I really yeah. like mid-century stuff. So I started designing lamps and it was recommended that I incorporate so for liability of you know making electrical type things. And I was I, they were art lamps, so I wasn't doing any production. The the big message is, especially for you know, I always talk about the young people, but but it's older people too that are getting into some of these making hobbies, is that any life experience that you have is actually valuable when you're making things. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a tangent story. Um, there was a conversation I had. I, we, I was um, a mentor with the first robotics team when my son was in high school. Uh, I was helping with the design. That's kind of what I was doing. I wasn't, I'm not an engineer. I wasn't able to figure out any of the electronics or the programming or anything like that, but it was about the actual hands-on building the thing, you know, and figuring out, you know, which size bolts to put in and uh, hook it all together. And stuff like that. And then, um, one day we were working on, I forget what part it was. It was a manipulator on the front of the uh, the robot. There was some sort of a hinging system that had to lift a big kind of a big piece of the front of the robot up and down because it had to shoot a, a, a rubber ball or something like that. The kids were like, you know, I wanted to do this thing. And so the adults would come in and say, okay, let's see how we can make it do what the students want this thing to do. And then work through it with them, you know. So I told him, I said, well, that hinge is a lot like the hinge on the stall door in the men's room. Yeah. So I said, you know, maybe TMI here, a little too much information, but sitting on the John in there, looking at the joint of the way that that door swings and the way that that thing's connected together, um, that that time was well spent, you know, to go back out there and say, hey, I think we can make this thing work. I think I found a hinge, you know, a way that this thing could hinge, you know. So it was like, a, you know, he was like, okay, well, now what? You're like, how did it, you know, I said, well, if you're always aware of all these different things that you're experiencing all day long, you could be looking at anything. You could be the grocery cart at the grocery store or at the grocery store, the way that uh, one of the racks works or how the shelves hook together on the, on the shelves where the products are in the store or something like that. You can come back to excuse me, a project you're working on, and that could be the answer, you know, or part of it, or at least give you the inspiration to do that. So, um, and I, that was part of my training in school too. And you were probably the same way with, you know, going to art school or creative program of um, being able to harness that stuff and being you know, like a trained observer, basically just observing like everything you run into, no matter what it is you're looking at, like take, take notes, you know, of this, these things and how they work and then pull them out later, you know, be able to utilize them. So that, that kind of ties in, I think, with what you were saying. Absolutely. That's uh, something I always share with our young people in the office is that everything's another opportunity. And it's just a matter of applying whatever creative thought that you have to that opportunity. And I'm, I'm just, because I have a Topo Chico bottle here, I'm looking at, you know, some of the little detail in the bottle, some of the texture, some mm -hmm. of the, the different ways that that it interacts with your hand. I mean, it's just a simple bottle for fizzy water, right? But there's there's little details mm -hmm. that make it different than the competitor that that give it a different tactile experience that maybe makes me want to have, you know, another six pack of this in the closet, you know? And yeah, and it's amazing when when you stop and you say, okay, something can be very utilitarian and just sort of answer the question. That's that's sort of step one. Okay, let's get it to function. But then step two is what's the next layer of design that we can add to this thing? And that doesn't mean decoration. It means design and design can increase functionality. It can increase the experience in some way, or it can heighten the experience in some way, or mm -hmm. it can accentuate a certain part of the design that you want to feature. And that that's the next level, right? That's when you get beyond uh, the simple lever to move a rock and you get into something that forms to your hand and somehow moves the rock in a better way. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, you know, and I think um, 
and as time goes on and I get older, I'm realizing that those things are really for me, those are the things that make me enjoy life every day. Like I, I, I would, I don't think I've said it on board since I was a kid, because how can I be bored when there's all this around me, all these things to observe and all these things, uh, you know, picking some stuff up. Now I was uh, back, if anybody, the listeners haven't listened to any of your back uh, podcasts, I would suggest that they go back and listen to them because there's some very interesting subjects you guys have covered. Um, and one that I'd recently listened to, which was maybe, I don't know, four episodes ago or something, you were discussing some of the uh, architectural things and talking about just experiencing stuff. Um, uh, just in our designing our own house, there's just so many things that were just so obvious. Like, um, uh, and you may have may have talked about this exact subject at some point during your um, architectural experience. But when when people go to a restaurant and you're standing there waiting to be seated, and they say, "Would you like a table or a booth?" Right? You know what most people choose, right? The booth. They want to sit. They want to sit in a booth, right? And so we went over that when we were working with this uh, architect couple. Uh, residential architects when we did our house um, and uh, we realized and they were talking about the historic like just people in general they like to be they like to feel kind of protected a bit like in, in you know like a, not living in a cave necessarily but I mean you want to kind of feel cozy right the word cozy like you know like and so these big open spaces like gymnasiums and op these big open spaces people feel vulnerable it's not really comfortable and they might not be able to tap into why they don't feel comfortable and maybe even the colors are are, are cool colors in big open spaces and cool colors it's like i you know i'm in the uh you know arctic <laughs> it's like because it's like not comfortable right but if it's a warm even the colors are warm and it's a cozy space and maybe the textures are a bit softer and things like that um, people feel more comfortable. And so we, we discussed all this stuff when we were working on our house. And so we ended up in our, our dining room in our house is a banquette. That's probably, I, how big is it? It's like 15, it's a booth basically that can probably hold about eight people. Um, and it's, it's our gathering spot in our house because that's our, that's our, Hey, where do you want to sit? You know, I want a booth. Well, this is our, this banquette is just this real comfortable place. In fact, over that dining table, we actually lowered the ceiling. Um, that ceiling has about a seven foot ceiling uh, just in that area. And also helps to separate from the kitchen area because the ceiling heights are different. So when you walk in that space and it's a wood ceiling, it goes from a white, like an off white ceiling in the kitchen area to this warm wood ceiling uh, that's lower in the dining area. And it feels like you're in this little cozy space. And I would have never, if I wasn't educated by those architects, I may not have ever defined that. I probably knew it, but I didn't define it. But once it's defined, I, I use it all the time. I use a lot of these things I learned from those architects, you know, and in and, and the way that you walk into a space and the way that that space feels, even if you're, you know, you're, you know, putting machines in your garage and your shop and how you get through it and all those things like it's like, I don't know, maybe I want it here, maybe I want it there. Well, you can actually break it down. I'm not telling you anything new because you're an architect, but you can break it down and you can say, well, there, okay, here's a, here's a way to figure this out. There's actually a method to some of this stuff, you know, of how you get through the space or what draws you into a space and what makes you want to go to that other side of the room where if there's a little corner, a little half wall or something, it makes you kind of want to go around that half wall just to see what's on the other side of it. You know, it's kind of like you kind of want to explore this because you can see a little bit of something versus if it's just a dead end. Well, why do I need to go there? You know, type of a thing. So, yeah, so um, visual cues to kind of uh, lead you around and dictate what this room is supposed to be for or to lead you on to the next the next yeah. thing. And it can to apply to other things too. It doesn't just have to be uh, physical spaces. I mean, it could be designing a, a, a product or something like that. And you're giving it a little bit of interest so that it looks a little bit more interesting than maybe it actually is, you know, that, that's not just functional, but not being over-designed either, you know, um, not designed for design sake, but that it actually has a, there's a reason for it. And so, um, well, Bernie, I'll, I'll interject. There's, there's a couple of things that always come to mind and it's, it's whether it's architecture or any other kind of design, whether it's illustration. And, and uh, I, I share a similar background in that I started my career as an illustrator. And for the first four or five years of my career, I just did architectural illustration. And it's exactly like illustrating automobiles. It's just buildings instead of automobiles. And, well, I didn't know that about you. I didn't, and, I didn't ever hear you say that before. Yeah. And of course, I came out of school in 97. So if you can imagine, 3D was just happening on a PC level uh, while I was at school. 
And so I learned all of the traditional techniques, airbrushing and watercoloring and pen and ink and yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden there's 3D studio and some of these other programs that, you know, literally a handful of people on the planet knew how to use when I started using them and um, fascinating stuff. But, but the thing that I would share, again, if it's, if it's architecture, if it's car design, if it's uh, uh, product design or anything else, Gestalt principles, the, I think there's seven Gestalt principles, you know, motion and, and point and uh, line and, and some of these other things, balance. When you look at those, they apply to everything and they apply to architecture mm-hmm. as well. But, but, you know, you look at graphic design and they apply one way, you know, it's a piece of paper or it's a, an object that's printed on. And then you go into a three-dimensional space, those same, you know, rhythm um, and tempo and all of those things apply. It's a matter of how are you drawing your eye across the space? How, and maybe it's not your eye, maybe it's a human body to experience thing. And, and, and now you're not just playing in two dimensions, you're playing in that third dimension and you have light and you have all these other things that it uh, play along, but those gestalt principles are the same, whether it's on paper or whether it's in a three-dimensional space, they just become much more complex in terms of how you, how you assign them or how you play with them. And the other thing that, that I always like to share is that when we experience space, it's, it's like a movie in some ways, but it's extraordinarily non-linear. And, you know, it's a, it's a piece of music, but it's, it can be played in any order that you want it to be played. And sometimes it's not played completely. Sometimes it's only partially played. And when you start thinking of, of designs that way, um, and I'll go back to some of the things that I've seen you build and design and make. Um, for those of you who haven't followed Bernie uh, for forever like I have, um, you made this really interesting concrete lamp at one point in time. And I don't remember what you called it or what the name is. So somebody could look it up, but you could probably share that. But you look at you, you look at the initial design and, and I'm doing this all from memory. It's been a long time since I've seen that lamp, but I, a while ago. I, I, I seem to recall that there were, there were um, um, rustication joints or that's what architects would call them, but, but joints in the, it wasn't just smooth concrete. There was detail in the concrete. So even within the individual piece, there was, there was more to experience from a, from a visual, from a textural perspective. And I think when you talk about three-dimensional things and, and complex design, that was a very small package that was extraordinarily complex through what it looks like, feels like, but then how it was actually assembled was a whole other set of problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the initial idea, and if anybody goes and looks at that, I hope you go and, go and check it out. Um, that I, I was, um, uh, the idea of having a CNC router machine, uh, I wanted to, right from the get-go, I wanted to just explore um, what I could do with it. And so I, as I started researching and watching what other people were doing with it, I started to see this pattern of like what things look like coming off the CNC router. So when it came up, that was a contest actually for QuickCrete. That's right, yeah. And I wanted to make, I told you I started out as a lamp design company, actually doing lighting design. And so I thought, here's a, here's a, here's a lighting contest and I can actually, you know, do something with it. And so um, I wanted to do a lamp and I, I would, I'd love comments if people want to take a look at this and tell me what they think of this, that my personal challenge, it wasn't the challenge of the con- contest, but my personal challenge was to make a lamp that, that was a hundred percent made on a CNC router that didn't look like any of it was made on a CNC router. For one thing, it's concrete. So, you know, the forms right. were made on the router, but not the con- concrete part. And then the, it's, a, it's a triangle. So the three wooden legs are two-sided 3D carvings that, you know, don't, I, well, I guess if you knew 3D wood carving and stuff like that, you could probably guess that they could have been machined. Um, that, and then uh, even the little sticks that are around the top of the shade which was really a, a wasteful type of a thing that I cut the, how much wood that I used to make these little sticks with these grooves in them. But my challenge was to make them on the CNC router. So it's all in the, in the video. The, the pieces of paper that were, that were the, the lampshade, those are rectangles of paper. I did cut those with an exacto knife. So those weren't cut on the router, but the rest of it was. 
I'm curious, like, how did you start out? you like, all right, I'm, I want to design a lamp. I want it to be a CNC router. Like, what was your process to move through your iterations of design? Like, how many iterations did you do? What does I watched that this morning, and the thing oh. fits together like a puzzle. There's uh, yeah. the base of concrete, then there's a wood band, and then there's another base of concrete on top, or a, a hat of concrete, I guess, not a base. Uh, and then these sculpted legs hold up the whole mass of concrete. And then those sculpted legs go up to hold up the light. And I didn't see on the video how you got the wire from the bottom to the top. So there was a lot of planning involved in this thing to, to create it. So I'm trying to, uh, or I guess I'm trying to ask, like, what was your process to design this thing? Like, what was your first step after you decided you wanted it to be a CNC-based project? Yeah. Um, so, okay. Yeah. I can give you some info, input on that. The, uh, the challenge was to use one bag of quickcrete just to make a, make a piece of make whatever out of one bag of quickcrete. So it couldn't be any more, uh, concrete than that. And, uh, uh jumping back just one second to address what Greg had said, I was fascinated with the fact that quickcrete concrete, what it is, the reason it's quickcrete is because it already has gravel in the mixture. So it's the cement with the gravel and sand, some fines in there that make quickcrete. So you don't have to mix anything else. You just add water to it. So the texture you're talking about is the fact that I was so fascinated with the fact that some of those little stones in there are a little like, like river wash stone. It's not crushed stone. It's actually real. Um, I don't know what, what, what you call it. It's, it's um, well, you know, if you're, you're in a river and you pick up that, yeah. that, that gravel and they're, they're all rounded off little stones, a little different colors and things like that. Um, so before the concrete fully cured, when it got just firm enough that I could take it out of the molds, um, I took a scrub brush and I scrubbed it really hard so that it scrubbed off that, that outer concrete and it just left those stones on there. So that texture that you see is that that's how I got that. And the reason I got it was I wanted to see those stones. I didn't want those stones to just be hidden in there. You know, I wanted to show. So that was that just as a side note, that's why the surface is there. So I had to use the concrete. Um, I had <clears throat> the legs. In fact, I think in the video, if you go back and check it, I think there's a little blurb in there, a couple of sentences I put in <clears throat> where I was explaining that those legs, I had cutoffs from the cedar deck on the back of my house. And those legs, the parameters that I gave myself was the fact that I had to cut those each of those legs out of a piece of two by six cedar. So it literally, I, I, I adjusted those curves and everything in those legs so that I could cut them out of a two by six. So that gave me my parameter, the, you know, you know how that had to be cut uh, like that and the, the width also, because <clears throat> it had to be in less than an inch and a half thick. Um, uh, triangles, uh, if you, you know, use a camera tripod, you know that three-legged things always stand up. And so it was like, I wasn't going to have any wobbles in it because it only has three legs. So that kind of uh, worked out that way. And triangles, I think triangles are one of the mag magical things of the, uh, of the universe along with circles you know they're humans didn't invent geometry like like that like that those things exist without people circles and triangles and things like that so i've always been fascinated with that so that's why it kind of came up with a three-legged you know the, the triangular shape and then also because i've studied um mid-century modern for so long that i needed i needed i wanted it to be is <clears throat> a need i guess in my head uh, that it had to be a mid-century type of a look, but more of like a neo. Is that yeah. is that a thing, Greg? Can we say that? Yeah, neo, neo absolutely. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> I was going to um, say it, there's a there's a little. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the right word. I'll let I'll let you continue talking, and then I'll then I'll come up with it. I'm sure. Okay. Well, the um uh, uh all the colors on it too. I really like, um, especially for home furnishings. I really like warm warm colors. I just think they're more inviting and more like you know want to touch them. And a lot of colors in nature are are warm colors. Um, even the things you'd consider to be neutral, like any of the tree barks and things like that. If you really were to compare them, they tend to be on the warm scale of uh, of colors. Things that you want to touch, you know, like you know, like things that are like ice cold and stuff. You normally wouldn't want to go and hug it, you know. Like, but if it's warm, you know, uh, it tends to be anyway. So that's why the the colors that way. Even the shade, uh, the paper on the shades a cream a cream color. <clears throat> and also whatever the materials were, like I said, along with the uh, concrete, I wanted the concrete to show what it was. I wanted to you see what it is. In fact, there's no, there's not even a clear coat on that concrete. It's just scrubbed and washed, and that's the reason that the surface is like it is. And then the wood. Well, you guys know, you guys do woodworking, you know, 
I wouldn't paint over wood. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so that's a natural finish um, you know, on, that, on that cedar. And cedar, by the way, if you guys have ever used cedar for different things, it's not friendly to my experience with cedar. <laughs> it's really bad. It leaves splinters and it's just, it's just, it's what I had. And I yeah. like it now, now that I did it, I'm glad that I, you know, it, I love the way it turned out, but if I were to start all over again, I really would not use cedar. I would use something else, you know, that was uh, a little bit easier to, to, to work with, especially when you're doing those curves and things like that. It would never sand out. I, I just could, I kept sanding it, yeah. sanding it, sanding it. And basically every time I rub my hand over it, I get a splinter. It's like, I'm sanding the crap out of this thing. And it just keeps giving me splinters. So like I said, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a woodworker. Um, you know, at, at all. So um, I guess, I don't know, Brian, does that, does that help? Yes. Give you some, some yeah, idea. So, of what uh, I, I'll, I have kind of a follow-up question. Like as you were going through this design, you, you clearly had a, a vision in your head of what you wanted it to look like. And you said that you had these design parameters of the two by six had to, it had to fit in this two by six. Um, oftentimes I'll have a vision, what I want something to look like, but things, um, constraints, design constraints or material constraints force me out of my vision is that did the lamp turn out to be your original vision or did those constraints force you down a different path? No, it all it all worked out. I don't know. Maybe it goes back to my history. I was telling you guys about the fact that I've, I've most of my art through the my life has been for other people. And, and so as far as me being satisfied, it was kind of like, well, you guys know that when you work for a client, right? you have your satisfaction, but you also have your client satisfaction. So a lot of times if the client's satisfied, yeah, you know, I guess I'm satisfied too. So I guess if it, if it worked out and it was okay, um, you know, and, and it, and it, and it was successful, uh, it may not have been my original vision, but if it was successful on enough levels, I think that I, maybe I just have that acceptance of the fact that that's what it is. And I think that I had, a, I had a mentor just, this just came to me um, when I was uh, real young, when I just got out of school, um, I'd like it probably a lot of kids in their early twenties. Um, I was, I was, I just want to know like, how much money can I make at this? How, how much money can I make at this job? Right. Is this going to, yeah. and, and he told me, I mean, he sat me down a couple of times and it wasn't just casually. It was like, okay, listen, if you get good at something and you're passionate about it and you tell people about it, that you do this, these things, you won't have to ever ask for a raise. Like you're the money will, the money will just come. People will find you. And you, you won't have to worry about it. So just focus on your skills and, um, you know, the, the end result will be what it, it, it is going to be. And uh, another thing, what he would say, and I remember so clearly him coming to me and saying, well, maybe it just doesn't want to be that way. Maybe you're trying to make it something it doesn't want to be. And I what are you, what, what are you saying? You know, and, and he would say, well, maybe, maybe it wants to be this way. And he would sit down and he would sketch something out and he'd say, well, maybe, maybe it wants to be this way, or maybe, you know, and he started talking about it like it was this first, I don't know if you call that first person or whatever, like that thing, whatever it was I was doing, I was trying to force it to be something it wasn't, didn't want to be. And um, I, I took me, I don't know, it was maybe a few months of him talking to me like that, that finally I started to pick up that language and uh, saying it to myself when I would be struggling with something and just thinking, maybe this just doesn't want to be this way, you know, like, and it's, it sounds a little bit, it could sound a little bit strange, but uh, to me now it's very natural to, yeah. to talk like that, that I'm trying to make something that doesn't want to be that way. And, you know, this gets really deep and philosophical, but a lot of times I think that as artists, we're, uh, how do you guys, it's hard to explain it, but it's something that like wants to exist and we're like the conduit to yeah. make it, make it, it into what it wants to be. Like, like not taking credit for it uh like we're just the facilitator like of to make this thing into into something right and so if you ask questions like i said this could get really deep but you know you're asking questions to the whatever the universe or whatever it is and you probably we could be talking to andy berkey right now um uh you know and say what is what what does this thing really want to be and what what should it be and kind of like you know, asking those questions to the, whatever it is, this intelligence, that's, you know, this creativity, this, um, I think, who was it? It was, uh, Einstein, I think it was that he actually had said that genius isn't a person. Genius is a thing that we tap into kind of like creativity. 
that mm-hmm. it's a thing like there people would call i think it was einstein calling him a genius and he was correct in saying well it's genius that you know i'm tapping into genius it's a thing that's available to everybody not it's not that's not me that i'm just the one that that it's talking to so that i can come up with these things because he would say that a lot of the discoveries that he made he he discovered these things while he was playing his violin in his kitchen it wasn't like he was on a chalkboard doing math it's like a lot of people will say and you guys may agree with this that you can you can be in the shower or wake up in the morning with an answer to something and uh, you know, so if you wake up in the morning with the answer to something you've been thinking a solution to a problem, like, d- did you solve it? Or did that just kind of like get delivered like a piece of mail, like in your mailbox? Like, you know, like, yeah, I've been working on this for a while. Here you go, buddy. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, and so you guys know, right? I see yeah, that you're, I'm like, I didn't think of that. And like, yeah, 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 your yeah, mind so. is always working in the background, even when you're sleeping. And if you go to bed thinking about something, a problem you're having in the morning, oftentimes your mind will have worked it out. And I've yeah. had uh, similar situations where you're talking about, uh, does this thing really want to be? I'll have a vision of what I want to build. And I'll go to the lumber yard, but I can't find the board that has the right grain to match my vision. But I'll often find something else while I'm there that'll spark a new idea that I'll use to create something new with. So there's always that little give and take or little pull between what it wants to be and what you want it to be. And you have to be able to uh, allow yourself to give, give into other people's ideas or the board's other ideas, the woods idea of what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. I think a a really poetic way that I've heard some of this phrased is uh, I heard somebody talking about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, famous guitar player, blues mm-hmm. guitar player. At the time, easily at the top of his game, there was nobody like him. And, you know, the, you can argue he fed off the people before him. Absolutely, he did. But you you can look up performances that Stevie had. And there were good nights and there were okay nights. And then there were these phenomenal performances. And somebody described it one time is that Stevie Ray Vaughan was an open channel. And you could see it. You could see it in his performance. He'd come out and, you know, he's going through the motions. It's a little bit stiff. This is the first song. And then all of a sudden the eyes would close, the head would tip back and something completely different would come out. And it, and it was the switch, you know, you're in the flow or however you want to say it. But the way that it was described is that he was an open channel. It was basically, I'm receiving whatever the universe has given me and it's going to come out of my fingers somehow. And I'm the conduit for that to happen. And it was a really... I've always thought of that as a pretty poetic way, but you're 100% right, Bernie, in that we spend all this time studying things and looking at things and cataloging and filling up sketchbooks and, and all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, when, when push comes to shove and you're operating the table saw or the router or programming, uh, modeling something in the computer, there's a switch. You go unconscious and things just happen. And it's almost like you're watching it happen from above in a weird sort of way. And two hours later, you look and you've got this stack of things that's exactly what you intended them to be at that point in time. And it's like, this is, this is amazing. How did this just happen? Am I that good of a woodworker or a welder or a machinist or a modeler or, or uh, an airbrush artist or whatever it is? I mean, uh, I used to paint watercolors and literally... Uh, if you videotape yourself painting a watercolor and watch it back, you sit and go, how, it, how did that happen? Like, that wasn't me that made that happen because it's, it's such a bizarre, uh, a bizarre skill to be able to control colored water around a page that wants to absorb yeah. some of it, bloom some of it, and, and let others run down the page. And anyway, I, I say all that. I, I would add one other thing. That, that I've used as a technique for a very long time. I, I read a book, gosh, it would have been uh, maybe like 1999. And it talked, it, it was a little bit of like 80s pop psychology weirdness, right? Uh, and it talked <clears throat> about putting things out in the universe and getting things back, just like you described, like the postman yeah. dropped it off. And it, it basically was, was one of those books that said, if there's something you want, all you have to do is say it out loud and the universe will help it make it happen, right? But in reality, what happens is you're, you're putting that thought into your brain. And all of a sudden, when you see opportunities, you realize that's an opportunity to make this thought come to fruition. And 
I use that all the time when I have a very difficult problem I'm trying to solve. Um, sometimes it's building related or client related, or sometimes it's product related. I throw it out there because I know, just like Brian said, my subconscious mind is going to just sit and churn on this thing, whether I'm thinking about it or not. Once I put it out there and two or three days later, <laughs> you open that proverbial mailbox and it's like, here's the answer. <laughs> and and it's pretty amazing when, when, you, when you adapt that as a skill and a problem-solving technique that you don't have to sit and burn through 15 pencils. Sometimes you just need to let it simmer on the back burner for a couple of days and it'll come to you. Yeah, I think it goes the, uh, the what I described about that um, <clears throat> the bathroom stall. Uh, you can actually run it the other way around too, that you can say, you can actually go take a walk and a lot of creatives will do that. They'll go take a walk somewhere and they'll go to the store. They'll go do something. And <clears throat> I know for me, when I do that, I'm not doing it just mindlessly. I'm going out there because I, I put that question out there, like you said, out to the universe. And I think, you know what? The universe might not be using my mailbox today. The universe might be giving me that answer down at the park or at the store or, you know, somewhere else. So I'm going to go wander around and go, oh, that's there it is right there it wasn't in the mail you know it wasn't in that proverbial mailbox it was it was somewhere else so uh not just going out like i said not just waiting for something to happen just sit there because as professionals professional creatives um you can't sit there and just say oh the answer will come to me you know the client's calling it's like well it just the answer's not coming to me yet so that's why i was um i had used the term harnessing earlier harnessing the creativity like making it work, like going to work, like you do. Um, Brian, I'm not sure what do you have what, your day job that you, uh, I work for myself. I build custom furniture, pieces of art, you do. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, good. So we're all in the same uh, camp there where when you show up at say, I'm going to go to work now, uh, Greg, you go, you go to an office off uh, away from your house, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. So we go to work wherever we're going, whether we're going to the other room or we're going to an office or whatever. And you basically got to go there. You've got a client, you got to turn on that creativity. You can't just go, well, today I don't feel like it. Well, no, you know, it doesn't work like that. So to gain those skills, I don't know you call those soft skills, mental skills or whatever it is that, um, you know, you want to get something done. And so, like I said, you can go chasing that stuff too and go, you know, the answer is somewhere. The universe is pretty big. I'm going to go walk around and see if I can go find this thing. It seems like it's not coming to my location at this moment. <laughs> you know, it's like, and so go, go looking for those things. And who knows whether that was sit there for you or not, or if it just happens to be that, um, you know, you might, you might meet somebody that just happens to, I don't know, they got a new type of ballpoint pen or something or something that's just like, yeah what the, that's the thing that me, what's that mechanism thing and it's just like oh you know that's what i was waiting that's the thing i needed you know or whatever and it might not be that yeah i think it's a lot about uh being open to to your environment uh a little while ago a couple weeks ago i was in uh, uh vancouver canada and i was walking around vancouver downtown and there's this old part of town where the street is all cobblestone and it's loose cobblestone and so i was just walking along the street and listening to the cars drive by. And every time a car would drive by, all the cobblestones would rattle. And it just got me thinking like, I need to make something uh, that that has some type of sound to it that uh, just kind of every time something swishes by it, it makes some kind of weird sound or something. So I've been slowly sketching out some kind of sculpture that I want to build in the future just by being open-minded to it. Uh, and then mm -hmm. to, uh, piggyback on your uh, bathroom door stall thing. It's a lot about cataloging, cataloging your environment. Like, okay, I saw that. I'm going to put that away for a later recall and being deliberate with your, your, uh, I guess, lack of better word, your dreams. Like when you mm -hmm. have a problem that you're trying to solve and you go to bed thinking about that problem and your subconscious works on that, it's going to pull from all those kind of things that you've cataloged into your brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Do you guys keep sketchbooks? Are you oh, yeah. very adamant with that? Now, I, I do, but I'm not. I, I really have to remind myself to go write those things down. My, my toxic trait, Bernie, is that I sketch on random things <laughs> and I don't put them in my sketchbook all the time. <laughs> so I've, I've literally got an area of my desk that's just piled with sketches. And whenever uh, you mentioned, 
you never say the words I'm bored. Uh, I'm never mm. at that point, but every once in a while, I'm like, what am I going to work on today? And I'll grab a little pile of sketches and start leafing through them and go, nope, that's the one I'm working on today. I'm going to take, cause most of the sketches are, are that initial flash. Right. And yeah, yeah. You've, and you've got to get it down or you're, or it's, it's not cause you didn't really think about, you didn't think of it. And so you need to jot it down before it disappears. Right. Yeah. I heard Neil Young talk one time. And I hope I haven't mentioned this on the podcast because these are you know, things that you see. He was in an interview and the person interviewing him said, I've heard that you never go anywhere without your guitar. Nowhere. And he goes, you're absolutely right. He said, when you have something hit, you have to deal with it right now. And he said, my job relies on me writing songs and being inspired. And he said, I had to leave a friend of mine's anniversary party the other day to walk out, pop the trunk of my car and get my guitar out and work through this idea that I had in my head. He said, because they're, and his words were, those things are fleeting and they don't come back. So you have to capture them while, you, while they're there. And, and I think that's a, it's a skill, but it's also a discipline to be able to say, I have this idea. I need to get it on paper. It doesn't have to be complete. It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not giving this drawing away as a Christmas present. It's me capturing this fleeting idea. And it's so important to do that. Yeah. I think I, that, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say the idea of sketching. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's less common than I thought. I, I mm. thought a lot of people just sketch stuff down and i've had people compliment me on some of the sketches i've put up on my uh, my instagram just stuff in my garage i'm just drawing it right on the toolbox on a yeah. piece of paper there and they're like wow that's a really neat and it's like don't worry about what it looks like it's you're not making a necessarily a piece of art for other people you're just documenting yeah i think people are afraid to sketch because they're not good at it and so that they don't do it and then they never get good at it but uh back to greg's point of a fleeting moment on I have that same problem. I'll have an idea and then it'll just be gone. And I'll, I'll be like, oh, what was that idea I had an hour ago and I can't ever think of it. So on my cell phone, you know how you swipe and you have different home screens or whatever. At the top right hand corner of every single home screen is the Note app. So that way, no matter what home screen I am, if I think of an idea, I can hit the, the note app and write it down. My dad, my brother and me are insomniacs. And, and I say that uh, in a real sort of way. Um, sometimes I have trouble sleeping more than three or four hours at a time. And so you just wake up at these inopportune times, just the way we're wired. And I've learned you if you wake up in the middle of the night, you need to have a piece of paper next, you know, on your bed stand or something. And again, not a complete thought, but if you don't get it down, it, it disappears. Um, but I'll make one other plug for those who, who don't have great sketching skills. Brian and I did a podcast about Betty Edwards book, drawing on the right side of the brain. And uh, that's a wonderful book for people who, who don't currently draw that want to learn how to draw and over the course of a month or two, you can turn from an absolute novice into somebody who can draw pretty well uh, if you're looking for something like that. Yeah, I bought that book and I'm slowly working through it. It's fantastic. And that's our uh, our second most listened to episode. So hopefully it was pretty good because a lot of people have listened to that one. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm looking at the time here. We've been on for almost an hour and a half, uh, hour and 20 minutes. Do we want to do a quick wrap up? Yeah, I have one more question. You got it. You can't overthink this, Bernie. You got to be pretty quick about it. Uh, I see that you have a love for furniture design in mid-century modern. So I want to know how you feel about hairpin legs. What about, okay, the, the, the quick answer is I don't like them. Thank you. Uh, I, <laughs> um, you passed. I spend, I, I, yeah. I, I, we can publish I, this episode now. You passed the real test. Yeah, I actually, I, I had some that somebody had given me a few years ago and I finally got rid of them. I just, they, I threw them away. <laughs> They're just, I want to, I want to be sure. I, I don't ever like to disparage anybody um, because I think the things like hairpin legs are a means to an end, right? Like somebody can't figure out anything, uh, call it below the apron of a table. And, and that's a way to get through that, that to, express the tabletop that you're trying to express and not have to worry about everything. But my challenge is always, if somebody's going to use hairpin legs, think about the hairpin leg in a different way. Don't just buy one off the shelf or off the rack or copy somebody else's. There are other ways to make that hairpin leg and let that 
continue the expression that you're trying to make and be another statement. Well, then you end up with a Noguchi table. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> it's well, all about the base and not about the tabletop. Yes, that's right. The, the clear or the transparent top to the really uh, extraordinarily sinuous base. So thanks for, thanks for joining us on the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Greg Porter. You can follow me on social media at Greg's Garage on YouTube and Skyscraper Guitars on YouTube. And I want to thank our guest, Bernie Solo, for dropping by. And Bernie, I understand you have a potential new product that you might want to show off. Can you show us what that is real quick? Yep. It's an electric motor kit, uh, educational, maybe probably for schools, uh, could be for home use uh, for the, I'm thinking the age of maybe starting at age 12, 13 years old, something like that, uh, up into adult. We have had some adults build these things and they really like them. It comes with a little six volt battery pack here. You build it and turn it on and there you go and you can uh, you can tweak it you can you can add magnets to it take magnets off of it you can even add a little bit more voltage if you've got a, another bigger battery or double the batteries or whatever and just kind of play with it and tune it up and make it go fast slower check it out and uh all that so anyway uh keep in touch with me and uh, keep in touch with my social media and you'll be able to see what i'm doing with this thing and when it actually comes out but i really think it's going to be a product that i'm gonna um add to probably some small batch runs of it so Thanks for letting me plug that. Absolutely. And you can follow Bernie at Works by Solo, no spaces mm -hmm. on YouTube, Instagram, and any other social media outlet. Yep. Anywhere. That's my dot com as well. All right. And I'm Brian Benham. You can find all my socials at brianbenham.com. And you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. And if you want to find all the links to all our show notes, uh, just go to themakersquest.com. Thanks for listening.